Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. It is Pastor Jonathan Mason. Listen, I got to tell you something. I'm excited today uh, because I've been out of my pulpit for the entire month of October. Uh, I've been preaching at other churches, and I actually took some vacation time. Uh, as you know, I've been talking about it. I celebrated my 50th birthday, uh, and now I'm old. I got my, and by the way, my AARP card did come in the mail. Uh, they actually sent me a bag yesterday. I got a bag from AARP, uh, but I'm excited. I got a chance to be in front of my congregation uh, this Sunday, and we are back, and we're not going anywhere anytime soon. But listen, I'm not going to prolong uh, uh, the opening monologue today because I'm actually excited about something else. I've got the former city controller of Philadelphia here in the studio with me. You know I give preferential treatment to guests who come in the studio. Not knocking anybody that calls on the phone, but we like them in the studio. Uh, And here's something else I got to share about this young lady. That uh, is our former city controller, and we'll talk a little bit about what that job entails. Uh, but she also is a graduate of Abington High School. Now, y'all know where I'm from. You knew where I grew up. I talk about it all the time. She's a fellow galloping ghost, <laughs> and she's running for mayor of the city of Philadelphia. Let me welcome into the pastor's office so we can start this congregate con- conversation. I'm thinking I'm about to preach again, Chris. Let's welcome into the pastor's office, Rebecca Reinhardt. Rebecca, welcome into the pastor's office. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Listen, listen, September the 25th, I'm sorry, October 25th, I read an article and I saw a picture of you standing with your husband mm-hmm. and your daughter. You were actually standing in a place which we'll talk about uh, that unfortunately has gotten a lot of negative publicity as of late because of the crime that is prevalent there. So what I did is I I went and started doing some research uh, about you because, uh, as I share with you off air, I've been talking to all of the candidates for me and and really allowing our listeners to be informed because I believe that an informed constituent makes the right decisions. And as I looked at your background, I'm like, holy cow, she's from Abington. (laughs) So then I started texting some people that I know and that we probably know in common. And they're like, yeah, she's an Abington graduate. So first of all, I'm pumped. That I, I have that. a fellow ghost here. We're not going to stay on that because we got so many issues to deal with. But 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 talk to me about what it's like to come from those beginnings out in the suburbs, you know, out there by Lee's Hoagie, out there by <laughs> Baderwood, uh, out there by the old, I walk, you know, my mom and I were driving up uh, York Road the other day, and my mom has late stage Alzheimer's. And I said okay. to her, I said, 
What's that building right there? She said, oh, I know what that is. That's Strawbridge and Clothier. You know, the big building right yeah. there. So we, yeah. all, we got that shared background. What is it like to be sitting here now as a candidate for mayor coming from our little town of Abington? It feels, it feels great, actually. Um, I mean, I've been uh, truly honored to represent the people of Philadelphia for the last five years as the independently elected city controller. Um, and I, I love Philadelphia. Uh, I did grow up in, in Abington, in the suburbs, but I, I love Philly, and I want to have the biggest impact I can have, which is why I'm here now, why I'm running for mayor. So— you made your announcement, and, and Philadelphia does have a, I guess I would say, I think it's an archaic law, uh, in as much as you have to resign from office in order to seek the position of mayor. Uh, you were elected in 2017. You've had an opportunity to audit all of the agencies in the city. Uh, you've had an opportunity to really see what the inner workings of the city are all about. Uh, why now? Why at this moment does it make sense to move from that position, which is critical to the city's mm-hmm. development and operation, to run for mayor? Sure. So just a little bit about myself. I spent about close to a decade working for the city before running for city controller. And uh, and before that, I was in the private sector. Uh, and for the close to 10 years I worked for the city, uh, I worked for two mayors, for Nutter and then for Kenny for a year, as the city treasurer, as the budget director. I made the decision after that point that I needed to run for city controller because the change that I wanted to make in city government needed some political disruption. Okay. And what I mean by that is I saw from the inside that too often our government, our city government doesn't work for the people of the city. There's a lot of insider baseball. There's a lot of entrenchment. Um, And I really felt that government's supposed to work. And I am idealistic about it, that government should work for people. It's supposed to provide services and help people when they need help. And when government's just helping those that are connected, that's not what it's supposed to do. And that's what made me run for city controller. And in that election, and I ran for controller because I have a financial background. So I thought, oh, that's... Bear Stearns, right? Yeah, I worked at Bear Stearns. So I thought, okay, I have a financial background. I can do that job of city controller. Um, So I ran, but I was not expected to win that race. Um, I'm a Democrat, but I ran against the Democratic Party. I ran against a long-term incumbent and definitely was not expected to win that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I did. And... I think that the reason I won by 50 and I won with 58% of the vote. Um, the reason I won is because people want that change. Uh, so I spent about five years. I took office in 2018, spent five years as the controller, uh, was the first woman city controller, uh, felt really honored and humbled to represent the people and felt, um, That I really did add value. I audited every department. I went beyond the financial auditing and looked at issues like gun violence and on-time trash collection. Um, I was been vocal in our 
the inhumane conditions in our prison facilities. But in the end, the power of the controller is to audit and to make recommendations. But I could not force the mayor to do it. And that's what led me to decide if I was truly going to make it work, because it can work on all of the issues, you know, gun violence, we can get the violence down. There's things that other cities are doing. We can do this. Um, Cleaning our streets, fixing our education system. We can do this. And that's why I decided, you know what? I have to do this. I have to run for mayor because I want to be able to make that change. Understood. So I was just talking to a friend of mine as I was uh, coming to the office today. He's an attorney in Philadelphia, well connected to, you know, the party. And we were talking about the role of mayor because I was sharing that I was going to be interviewing another candidate Mm -hmm. for mayor. And he said to me, I don't know why anybody would want that job. You know, you put yourself in the position to be, for lack of a better term, the target uh, for everything sure. that goes bad, uh, may not get all of the credit for things that go good. Uh, and then also you're dependent upon a council to carry forth or bring through recommendations that you could approve, that you could sign off on. You know, things get jammed up uh, sure. in the political bureaucracy. Uh, it, it, you feel, obviously, that this is the best way for you to make an impact, uh, to change the lives of Philadelphia, and we appreciate that. But at the end of the day, At the end of the day, Philly has been controlled by Democrats for decades. Why will it be different under your administration? Because right now, and I've said this to all the candidates, we're dealing with the highest level of murders that we faced in the city. Crime is going crazy. Drugs, we've got open air, right up in Kensington, right up the street, open air drug usage. You can go up there right now and see people using drugs out there in the park. Mm -hmm. How is it going to change With your administration. It's going to change. And this is how I have shown over the last five years as city controller that I stand up to the status quo. I mean, I from the beginning, uh, back in 2018, my office discovered that the city hadn't reconciled its largest cash account in three years and that 33 million was missing. Unaccounted for. Wow. Um. Mayor Kenny got mad at me, said it's not it's not missing. It's just unaccounted for. I said, either way, it, we don't know where it is. And so that was a big fight that I got into. And I've I feel that when a lot of other electeds have sort of backed down to the political structure, I've been very straightforward of, look, I want to make a change here. I want to disrupt things and get things done for the people. And I believe it's possible. And I'm not, I didn't grow up in politics. Um, I never worked on a political campaign. So when I ran for office for city controller, that was my first time being involved. I feel, and you mentioned around why does anyone want this job? I think it's the best job. And I'll tell you why. Because the mayor has the ability to truly make an impact and to inspire and to lead. Yes, when things go wrong, 
everyone yells. Sure, that's part of the love, though. And I, and I mean that. Um, being a parent is hard, right? But being a parent is also wonderful. And I think that working with city council, that's part of it. I mean, American politics was developed with this push-pull of, of different checks and balances. So that's part of it. I think it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing job. And I feel that right now you mentioned a few of the big issues, uh, gun violence. That's something that I've leaned into since 2019 to look into what works. You know, Oakland reduced their homicide rate by 32% by doing three strategies, three intervention strategies. New Orleans did them too. That's what I've been advocating that we need to do. Um, We need to invest in the neighborhoods in terms of library hours and rec centers. And and too often what, what has happened historically, and my office has disclosed, made this transparent, for example, on on-time trash collection, that our poorest neighborhoods are the ones with the worst services, which is absolutely not right. So I say all that to say that I think I've shown that I'm different. Okay. You know, I think that I've shown a courage to stand up to the party. I mean, I ran against a long-term incumbent in 2017. I only had the support of one out of 69 ward leaders. Wow. And I won with 58% of the vote. So for me, this is about, I'm going to stand with the people I want to make this government work. We must make it safe and we can clean the streets and educate the kids. We can do this. That's how I feel. Let's deal with a couple of the the issues. Sure. Um, you released a fairly scathing report uh, on the uh, police department. Um, Commissioner uh, Outlaw was on our show just last week uh, and we were talking about several of the issues that she's encountering uh, how do we, and, and this is a pretty, this is a pretty important issue for me, particularly in the community of Frankfurt, sure. because when you look around on the corners, I see police officers posted, but they're sitting in their cars looking at their iPhones. Right. They're, they're not out in the community talking to the neighborhood, getting to know people. And when something goes wrong, guess what? The last folk that the the last people that the people in this neighborhood are going to go to the police. Mm-hmm. They're not going to tell them anything. They don't trust them. So how do we how do we make the police how do we make law enforcement more effective in communities that aren't as affluent? Sure. Uh, that 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 really do need their support and need them to be effective. Mm-hmm. How do we do that in your administration? So this was actually one of the biggest recommendations to come out of my office's audit, which is that in order to develop the trust, we need to change. And this is what I would do. We need to change how we develop the resource allocation, how we develop police's budget neighborhood by neighborhood. So right now, the police department gets about $820 million a year. There's a little under 6,000 officers. Only 2,500 of them are actually on patrol. The majority are in special units or desk work, some of which could be done by civilians. We could move more officers on the street. But this idea, and it sounds 
maybe a little bit um, theoretical, but stay with me here for a second, because the idea is to go police district by police district, neighborhood by neighborhood, and talk to the community, community meaning residents, business owners, faith leaders, and say, what do you want from police to truly feel safe? It's your tax dollars. It's your community. It's your block. What do you want? And if people say, I want police officers to walk the street. I want them to know my name. I want them to figure out why there's so much illegal dumping or I want them what all of the things in the particular community and then develop the budget based on what the community wants. It's completely opposite. And I come from a budgeting and financial background, but it's completely opposite than what happens now, which is that the $820 million is given to the police department. The spending is based on historical allocations, mm-hmm. uh, decade after decade, That's right. and based on what's called perceived need. Perceived need of the community is very different than what would be if we actually rebuilt it. I'm not saying it would be easy, but I think if we did that, then the trust would start to develop because the police would be out walking the beat, talking to people, would be giving the community what they want and deserve. Um, And then there's a variety of other things that need to happen as well. But I think that's the beginning because right now there's very few officers actually on patrol. Mm -hmm. You know, 2,500 against our population in the city of Philadelphia sounds it just sounds bad when you say it. Right. And, and that was one of the things that I had a conversation with uh, Commissioner Outlaw about, you know, why are we suffering these, not why, how do we overcome our recruitment sure. challenges? yeah. You know, because we, let's face it, law enforcement has a black eye all across the country right now, right? That's right. Uh, so, so how do we overcome the recruitment challenges? And then, too, as we're figuring out how to overcome it, one thing that I absolutely believe in, if I were ever to run for office, this would be something I would stand on. You need to hire officers in the communities that are – Frankfurt needs police officers from Frankfurt. Right. Okay? Southwest Philly needs police officers from Southwest Philly. You know, There needs to be that familiarity. And I know it's aspirational, but, again, if you're t- if from the way you're talking regarding right. this bottom-up budget. Absolutely. Top, from not, not top-down, but bottom-up budgeting. If it's if if you really go in that direction, that type of thing can happen. That type of innovation can come to fruition. Yes, yes. And so – and you're exactly right that – if, if you do that, grassroots up, bottom-up budgeting, then people from the community might actually want to be police officers more than what we're seeing now because they say, oh, we're going to be part of something. We're going to make a, a seismic shift in what this is. I mean, the police department is a very important public safety agency. Very important. And I do want to say Commissioner Outlaw and her senior team we're very cooperative through the whole process. But what we need is some significant change in order to make people truly feel safe. What you're talking about is a paradigm shift in thought. Absolutely. Yeah, you're talking about a paradigm shift in thought, and, and, I, and, I, and I get that 100%. Um, 
you got to get through the, the you got to get through the myriad of blockers and obstacles sure. to make that happen, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that will take time, and that will take coaxing. And I always say this: when leaders come into office, it's that first hundred days where you can really make seismic shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm sure that in your planning, you've already got that in your mind. Hey, listen, you're on Philly's favorite 100.7 FM, 99.5 HD3. Uh, we are talking to the former city controller of Philadelphia, Rebecca Reinhardt, about her run. For for mayor of Philadelphia. We're talking about policing. We don't have a lot of time with you, so I want to kind of move a little bit, sure, sure. be a little agile. Education. Yes. Our students suffered tremendously from 2020 to 2020 to the end of 2021. Remote learning, I don't care what anybody says, remote learning was not a success. And and so you have young people in these formative years who have missed out on a lot of the building blocks in math and English and science, not to mention the other thing that we really uncovered and that was glaring in the city of Philadelphia during this pandemic is the buildings. Are they really suitable for learning going forward? Uh, uh, not just the fact that they're old, uh, that they're not, that they don't have HVAC proper HVAC, that the circulation is bad. Not just that, but in this current year of 2022, are we set up for people for optimally for young people to be able to learn? Mm-hmm. Talk to us about your plans for education in Philadelphia. Yeah. So education is so important for the future of our city. And my daughter is in seventh grade uh, in the public school system in Philly. And it's something that, that is very important to me. You touched on two things, the condition of the buildings and then the actual education of our children. And I think both need to be addressed. I've gone to some of the schools, um, for nests down in South Philly, um, a few others. And there's plaster falling from the ceiling and the kids are brushing it off with one hand while they're reading their book with the other. That is not okay. So I think what first we need to do is, is make sure that it is not accepted. When I say by that is that I think too often in Philadelphia and probably in other major cities, but it's like, Oh, well that's the way it's been. I I don't think that that it can be accepted. Then we go to, okay, well, how are we going to fix it? How much money is needed to fix it? And then what's the alternative? Because if you wouldn't put your own kid in there, no one's kid should be in there. And so that that's my attitude on the buildings. And then on the education, what's interesting is that the mayor now can appoint the school board. That changed in, with Mayor Kenny um, four or five years ago. And I don't think that's been utilized to the extent it should be. The mayor, by appointing the school board, we don't have an elected school board, we have an appointed, right. can really influence educational outcomes. I think as mayor, I would set goals. We have only 40% of fourth graders reading at grade level. Well, we should be... At 60% in two years. And I'm just, and that could be a different percentage. But what I'm saying is, if we don't have goals and aspirations for improvement, then we're not going to improve. There's also some schools that are doing quite well. Um, And what I would look to do would be to talk to the principals 
of the schools that are doing very well in challenging conditions. Ask them what they need to do even better and then try to replicate that. You know, you're a budget expert. Yeah. uh, And you allocate budget line items to the things you care about most. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's just reality. Uh, when I do my budget for my company, uh, it's, the, it's the areas that are priority where the money goes. Right. We've got young people that when they leave the school, they have no support system at home. Right. They have no, they, they, they are let out of the school right out into the streets. And a lot of them go home when they want to. How do we create that supportive environment around our young people? And and the things I'm asking about, they all take money. They all take budgeting. It all needs to be priority, right? How do how do we create that supportive environment so our young people actually can learn? Because another thing that I saw during the pandemic is you got young people uh, trying to learn virtually, but no internet in the house. Uh, uh, They don't even have a place in the house segregated where they can actually sit quietly and learn. They got the the cousin over here watching television, another one playing video. I mean, this is reality for some children. How do we form that supportive bond around our children? How does that become a priority in your administration? I think it absolutely needs to be a priority. And there's been study after study that's shown that one caring adult in a child's life leads to their resilience and success in life. And I think we need to look at specific programs that work, specific models that work. We need to make sure we're providing the wrap wrap around might not be the best word, but the support around education that lets the child be able to learn. Uh, You mentioned about budget and priorities. You're absolutely right that a budget is about priorities. And that's also why I've said multiple times as city controller to the mayor's administration, you, you can't say that there's no money available. There's money available. I know from being budget director, when a past mayor would say to me, find $2 million for this. I want to fund this. You found it. I found it. That's right. And so don't, don't do that. That's, that's, don't say that. You know, that's just not true. There is money. I will say, though, that it's also about being smarter with spending to free up money for programs and strategies like you're talking about. For example, I mean, the city spends 30, 40 million easy uh, extra on overtime just because it's not managed right now. Okay. Uh, that's just one thing. There, there, there's many other things like that, that the city under my leadership would be better managed financially. So that would free up money for what we need to do for, all of our neighborhoods and all of our people. Understood. There's so much more that I would uh, like to talk to you about. Um, and it seems like every conversation I have with the candidates, we, we don't get to everything, right. uh, but the good news is there's a long campaign ahead. <laughs> uh, and I want to ask you and ask your wonderful communications director who's been so helpful to us if we could allocate some more time as the campaign goes forward. Absolutely. Because I want to talk about what your plan is for black and brown communities. Yes. What your plan is for small business in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. There's so many other hot button issues that we need to deal with because we got to make the right decision uh, come next November as the 
who's going to be mayor. Uh, the, the, the field is very crowded. The field is very crowded. So, so as we end this interview, why Rebecca Reinhardt over Dom, Kenyona Sanchez, Parker, Green, and... Let's just be real. Jeff Brown will be in there after the midterms are over, uh, and there are probably a couple of others. Mm -hmm. Why are you over your Democratic colleagues? I believe the city right now is at such a critical moment that it needs someone to lead it with the right city experience to hit the ground running on day one and the courage to change things. We can't have more of the status quo. And I think I have both of those things. 15 years of city experience and the courage. I've shown that. My, my, my good friend, uh, Tim Sorber, uh, who was the head football coach over at Abington, uh, he was one of the people I asked, you know, if he knew you. And uh, he wrote back, he says, I like her. She took on the Democratic hierarchy, <laughs> and she was elected. She won. So that's from a fellow Abington grad who's still working there. Unfortunately, Tim, you don't have a vote in Philly, so we got to talk to the Philadelphians, but thank you for your note. <laughs> uh, but but listen, I want to thank you for coming into the pastor's office. Uh, I you. wish you all the best uh, in your pursuit of this most important position in the city of Philadelphia. And I want you to know that I believe in us having an informed constituent. So anytime there's messages that you want to get out during this campaign, we're here to help get that message out so that Philadelphians can make the right decision. Rebecca Reinhardt, thank you for coming into Pastor's office. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been great to be here. And we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office, and we want to thank former city controller Rebecca Reinhardt for being with us here in the studio today to talk about her candidacy for mayor of Philadelphia. Uh, here's what I want to do, though, now. I want to kind of pivot. Uh, you know over the last two and a half years that I've been doing this program that the young people of our city, the young people of our nation are high priority for me. Uh, I pastor in a community uh, where a lot of our young people end up in the legal system. And I don't mean working for the legal system, but they end up in the system for one reason or many. And one of the things that we attempt to do here at the church that I pastor is to always have the doors open for young people because they need that type of support. So, so our young people are a priority for me. And then, too, I have two sons, one sixteen and one twelve, who are growing up in 2022, dealing with things that we've never had to encounter before when I was growing up. Uh, and so their future is always priority on my mind. So I look for topics to, to talk about with you uh, that deal with our young people. And while reading uh, up on what's going on in Harrisburg, uh, I found that Senator Tim Kearney uh, is co-authoring or planning to co-author legislation to make youth courts a priority uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. 
to bring them to reality. There are some schools that are using them, but it's not really prevalent in the state. So I wanted us to learn about youth courts today. I want us to learn why they're important and how they may stop the school-to-prison pipeline. So I want to welcome into the pastor's office for the first time, representing Delaware, Democrat, uh, Senator Tim Kearney. Welcome into the pastor's office, sir. Thank you, Pastor Mason. It's my pleasure to be here. Listen, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. Tell us how youth courts became a priority for you. Well, you know, we were discussing in the in the office ideas around, you know, part of the, the problems we have with prison, the, the school-to-prison pipeline. We wanted to introduce legislation that could help uh, disrupt it. You know, that, that pipeline is a set of policies and practices like suspensions and expulsions that emphasize punishment in schools rather than reform, and that really feed too many students towards involvement in the criminal justice system. The school-to-prison pipeline also, we've noticed, disproportionately affects black students. So there's been a lot of work done at the state level to study problems with our juvenile justice system. Most notably, the State Juvenile Justice Task Force issued a report last year acknowledging the harm of involvement with the juvenile justice system and wrecking it recommending improvements to the system and increased use of diversion programs. So that's basically what youth courts are. Youth courts are a diversion program uh, where, where the youth themselves run the court with a youth judge and a youth jury that hear the case and decide what the appropriate sanctions should be. Youth courts have an emphasis on conflict resolution and restorative justice, unlike most school discipline policies. And they can be either be juvenile justice system-based or school-based. And when they're in the schools, we often see them as part of the social studies curriculum or or meeting after school. So we basically feel that youth courts allow students to be judged by their peers rather than an authority figure, leading towards better accountability for one's actions. I think that's really where we need to, to find space for our kids. You know, I, I, I've got to share this, and I'll just take 30 seconds. Um, uh, I was talking with our, our last guest, former city controller, Reinhardt. Uh, she's an Abington High School grad, and, and I, I happen to be an Abington High School grad as well. And there were some years in junior high school, Senator, where I had more detentions than, I had, than there were days of the school year. There, there was my ninth grade year. Uh, I had so many detentions and suspensions that I ended up being expelled from school. And again, that was, you know, the administration followed their protocol and they expelled me. I ended up going to a school that was uh, what they called an alternative school. But what it really was, Senator, it was a daycare for kids, for delinquents. That's really what it was. Mm -hmm. And I learned nothing there. And I remember promising my parents. I said, if you get me back into public school, get me back to Abington, I promise you, I will never have another issue again. Get me back to school. And and I can't imagine. And the good news is they got me back and, and everything turned out well. But I can't imagine what the future was for those young people who had to stay in that place because there were they were there was no real supervision. What was really set up to help them was probably hurting them even more. And and I share that because I really like the concept of of peer to peer sanctions because and doing some type of intervention or alternative plan because what we got right now it really does set up the pipeline for kids to get in more trouble. 
That's absolutely right. You know, I, I, we were searching for a better way to address conflicts in school, you know, and to literally keep our kids in the classroom. I think that youth courts can be a powerful diversion program that emphasizes healing and restorative justice as opposed to punishment. So talk to me a little bit about where you've seen in other parts of the country that youth courts have actually been successful. What models would we be following to implement it here in Pennsylvania? Well, we actually we already have it in some places around. We just don't have it sanctioned by the state. So Philadelphia actually has some schools that, that actually have a youth court system. Um, it's uh, in use in Upper Darby in Chester. Uh, and there, there are also suburban and rural school districts that use it as well. There are some advocates out there who have talked with, the, with us in the office around uh, making this system work. And they're, they're true believers that this is a, really a, a great way to, to literally try to end this, this kind of pipeline. You know, again, this is the idea on, um, on restorative justice and healing as opposed to punishment. And um, having a jury of your peers and having them decide, you know, what it is that you've done and what it is that uh, how it should be reckoned you know, with is it's an important piece to the whole, the whole piece of this. So uh, let's talk about legislation. You're, to, let's talk about where we are in the process right now. Mm-hmm. You're currently preparing the legislation. I ca- kind of walk us through the steps to, to causing youth courts to be sanctioned by the state and then help me out when it is sanctioned by the state. Obviously that gives it some, some power, some budgeting. Talk to us about why that sanctioning is so important. Well, we're we're at a point now where we basically um, we haven't actually introduced the bill, so we're still working on the language about it. Uh, but we are what we're proposing is that the state uh, operate a five-year-long pilot program, so that they would the state would then give out grants to public schools and public charter schools to develop and run these youth courts. So we've, what we've done is we put out a, a co-sponsorship memo, so where we describe what the bill is going to be, and we look for support, you know, among our uh, among my peers in, in the Senate. Uh, and then the, where we are right now in the legislative, we're, you know, we're pretty much at the end of uh, of our legislative session, the current one. So we'll be looking to introduce this in January or February when the next session starts, and uh, hopefully when I get reelected, I'm back there. So it's. We do have a campaign, uh, you know, an election coming up in a few days. Uh, yeah, that, that's 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 kind of a, an important thing. We got to get you back in office, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> absolutely. So, so then budgeting. So then budgeting will be allocated towards youth courts. Uh, that's right. And then it, again, it becomes sanctioned by the state. And then obviously, will all school districts then have to implement it, or will it be voluntary? No, it's definitely voluntary. I mean, okay. We don't want to force this on, on people. That would kind of make it worse, I believe. Okay. But, you know, one of the important things that the pilot program would do would be give us a, a basis to, to collect data to demonstrate how effective youth courts can be at reducing student involvement with the criminal justice system, reducing the number of suspensions, and even improving school environments. You know, we know that this is not a – we can't tackle all the problems with the juvenile court system you know, the just the trauma, the achievement gap, none of those things can really be addressed through youth courts uh, specifically or only. But we do want to lift them up as a model that can help and to provide state support for schools that are interested in them. Well, we want to we want to always make sure that our listeners are 
highly informed, engaged, because uh, as I always share, a, an informed constituent base makes the right decisions. Uh, so, so I want to thank you for sharing this information with us today. Is there anywhere our listeners can go or anywhere our listeners can go online to find out more about this legislation or this pending legislation? There, there will be some information up on my website, which is senatorcarney.com. As the bill gets, when it gets a number and it gets introduced, then they'll be easier to find. I'm happy to uh, to contact you and let you know when the bill number gets assigned. And that's the easiest way to, to follow it through the, the process. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I, I'd be remiss if I let you go before asking you your thoughts on the midterm elections and also encouraging our listeners to make sure they get out and vote. I mean, Pennsylvania is the center of attention right now. We've got one of the hottest Senate races in the country. Uh, it may actually determine who controls the Senate going forward. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on the midterm and, and your own reelection uh, campaign that's running right now? Well, sure, Pastor. I, you know, it, it's the the governor's race is incredibly crucial for us here in, in Pennsylvania. Um, the, there's a you know a, the candidate on the Republican side is I, I sometimes wonder what planet he's from, kind of thing. It, it's some of his policies, particularly around education, seem to be done in a way to try to destroy public education. I think that the people look down and they really take a look at where people stand, the two candidates stand in various things. I think Josh Shapiro needs to be our, our governor moving forward. Um, and the Senate race, which, he, again, is getting very close, I just wish we weren't spending so much time on on how people say things as opposed to what they're actually saying. Lieutenant Governor uh, Fetterman has you know, suffered a stroke right around the, the primary time and is recovering, and he's He's made great strides in this. And, you know, his policies are policies that can actually help people, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the guy he's running against. You can pick the hot-button topic you want to uh, around, you know, the sort of, you know, we're we're talking about violence in schools and things like that. You know, Fetterman's in a much better position to try to attack the root causes for this. And, you know, let's face it, the root cause for most of the violence that we see in in the uh, certainly in the schools and, and certainly in our communities, is really uh, based around poverty. And, you know, we, we did amazing things during the pandemic, like with the child tax credit, for example, that lifted so many kids in Philadelphia out of poverty. Um, it was kind of an amazing thing. But then we wouldn't, we wouldn't continue it. You know, we, could, we knew we could afford to do it, but it was because of the makeup of the Senate that it really couldn't keep moving forward. So uh, electing John Fetterman to the to the United States Senate would go a long way towards, uh, you know, literally towards making people's lives better. Um, you know, the, the the House races and the Senate races in the uh, in the Commonwealth are have become usually important because of all the the actions by the our current Supreme Court, which is seems to be tossing everything back to the states to decide. So, uh, you know, we. We, we owe it to ourselves to, to get out and vote and really stand up for people. Why? I'm a proud Democrat. I'm a proud progressive, and I want to keep moving forward in this country. And I, I think that uh, the other party is going to be taking us in the opposite direction. Not to be partisan, Pastor, but that's, uh, 
That's where you stand, and that's where you're staying. I understand. Well, Senator Tim Kearney, I want to thank you for joining us in the pastor's office today. Uh, we wish you great success with this youth court legislation that you are preparing, and we also wish you success in your reelection. And if there's ever a time when we can help you get the message out over our airwaves about programs and policies that are there to help Pennsylvanians do better, we're right here for you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Pastor. It was my pleasure. God bless you. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber.